the excitement and joy that fills each of our hearts this afternoon is something that certainly is appreciative as we mentioned in prayer for God's extensive blessings to us today, the capability of hell, the reality of the freedom that we have to gather like this, and to understand no one's awaiting at the door to take our life just because we desire to meet in the name of our Savior. What great freedoms and enjoyment we're able to have even to open the Word of God, to possess copies of it and to use it day by day to lead and to guard our lives in the way that would be pleasing unto God. We have been for several Sunday evenings studying in the book of 2 Samuel along with those in the Bible Bowl study, and it's our hope that that study has been beneficial for them as well as each of us. After all, just because that book is in the Old Testament doesn't mean that it is not inspired. Rather, it is, and furthermore, lessons contained in it fall under the discussion of the inspired Apostle Paul in the 15th chapter of Romans, verse number 4. For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. As we look tonight at some more information from that book, let's begin with an introductory statement or two that has to do with, in a brief way, where we have come, and in a very simple fashion, where we shall proceed to this evening. As we started from chapter 13, we noticed that it was in that chapter that, in fact, Absalom took the life of Amnon, and he began to flee, of course, in terms of fearing for his own life. And as he fled, we well remember that the exile in which he found himself was quickly cared for by Joab's interesting scheme. Absalom was brought back. He still, however, was estranged from his father, and that took us through the 15th chapter of that book. In chapter 16, might we remember that, by that point, Absalom had already his conspiracy in mind, even to take the life or at least chase David from the throne. As David, in fact, left that throne with a degree of humiliation from Shimei and others, we find that Absalom, it seems, had the idea to put himself in position as king, and even if it meant taking the life of his own father, he sent his troops by the very plan of Hushai to go and find David and to take his life. Ultimately, God foiled that plot, and David's life, of course, was not taken, but rather Absalom, might we remember, got caught in an oak tree, as it were, and Joab took his life instead, and David is able to return. And upon that return, of course, after Absalom's death, is where that basically brings us to this evening. That takes us to the 19th chapter of the book of 2 Samuel, and so it is to that chapter I would urge you to turn with me as we look this evening at some of the features found in that chapter as well as chapter 20 and chapter 21. As we begin that, let's notice carefully what we find in chapter 19, and let us follow a plan much like what we have done before. We will look at the historical presentation first and then look at some lessons that could be of benefit and help to you and me in our life as we strive to live pleasingly today. In 2 Samuel, the 19th chapter, it starts by noting again a seamless presentation to the chapter before it. Absalom had just been killed. As we remember Joab taking his life, David was overcome with grief and lamentation over the death of his son. That lamentation was so extreme and so extensive that many of the very peoples of Israel came to appreciate that David would have preferred Absalom to live and they to have died. They came to believe that he really would have preferred it that way since he lamented so long and in such grieving fashion over this son 
who in fact was a rebel and who in fact even would have taken David's life. It was Joab who had the strength of character to approach David with that subject. He came before David and confronted him. And in that confrontation, he made note, your loyal servants who were willing to risk their life for you and for the kingdom, you have not shown them any thanksgiving at all. You, in fact, are continuing to mourn over this rebel son that you had. Ought not you to at least show some appreciation to your own troops who defended your life? Joab even mentioned to David, if you don't, they will desert you. They will turn and make alliances with others and they will follow leadership to you. With that said, David recognized the error of his way or the fact that that was not an appropriate course of action. He thus did address the people somewhat briefly and state to them his thanksgiving for them. But might we notice also in this same 19th chapter, it was first of all a desire to bring David back. He was not in Jerusalem having fled that place under the threat of, of Absalom. David's question, notice if you would, in verses 12 through 14, have to do with David desiring Judah to be the one to come and bring him back. Of all the tribes making up the entirety of the nation of Israel, David had a desire for Judah alone to come and to escort him back to the royal city. We shall find a bit later that that will raise problems. It'll cause an issue amongst some of the other tribes. But for now, that brings us to verse number 15. So the king returned and came to Jordan, and Judah came to Gilgal to go over to meet the king to conduct the king over Jordan. One of the tribes was here present to escort and to help David lead him back to the victorious place of his palace in Jerusalem. Notice, though, as this chapter goes on, two interesting conversations take place as David moves his way back to the capital. First, along that way back, he encounters a gentleman named Shimei. That name is familiar to us because we first saw him three chapters ago. In chapter 16, as David was fleeing Jerusalem, Shimei threw rocks at him in dust and in fact said, Thou bloody man! The blood, in fact, of you is being taken because you had the capability and are overcome by the very nature of the kingdom of Saul. Notice that what has now happened has just changed the tune of that song. Now Shimei is begging David to have mercy on him. The king is being returned to his royal position. Shimei does not wish to be punished for his earlier words to David. In fact, David does extend forgiveness to him. But that's not the only person who meets David on this return trip. Also, notice in verse 24, Mephibosheth meets him. That was again that lame son of Jonathan, the very grandson of Saul. Earlier, might we remember several chapters back, it had been Ziba, the servant in fact of Saul, who painted a picture that this Mephibosheth was a rebel himself, unwilling to support you, David, uninterested in wishing you well in your trip from Jerusalem. On that occasion, all the blessings of that family were given to Ziba. Here now Mephibosheth, though, is telling the truth to David that this servant of mine, in fact, misled and deceived you, and furthermore, you need to make things proper and correct. 
in the verses that followed, David again hears very kindly the statement of Mephibosheth and says to him, you and Ziba divide the land. In essence, retracting the former statement and now asserting that not all of it would go to Ziba. It would in fact be divided amongst Mephibosheth and Ziba himself. As the chapter quickly concludes, starting from verses 31 and onward, we learn about that kind friend who again we saw two chapters ago. That very kind gentleman named Barzillai. He had been one who had provided David with sustenance for he and his troops when they were on the run at Mahanaim. Again, in the fleeing from Absalom himself. This same Barzillai is mentioned here again in a very kind and complimentary way. So much so that David invites and offers to allow Barzillai to return with him to Jerusalem. But Barzillai refuses. He was an old man, he claimed, and there would be nothing for him to return to Jerusalem. But he does request that one of his servants be allowed to go with David back to Jerusalem. And that servant's name was Chimham. And so it was that Chimham went with David. And that brings us to verses 41 to 43. In the closing three verses to this chapter, we have, in fact, the very rehearsal of that matter that caused problems, or we said would do so. Judah alone came and escorted David from the Jordan River homeward. The other tribes were a bit upset by that fact. They, in fact, stated, David is the king of the whole empire. Why was Judah selected and not the rest of us? Why were we not asked or requested to also be a part of the parade to bring David back home? We can well imagine there were some hurt feelings amongst the other tribes in their recognition of the specialness apparently accorded to Judah. Ultimately, in verses 41 to 43, we notice that there is no easy resolution to this. It is a matter that remains to be a problem. The Bible both students will not be studying in the book of 1 Kings, but if one were to study in that book, one would find problems that would ultimately erupt in part from this. Problems that will lead to a division of the kingdom. But for now, might we notice that chapter closes with the discussion being a bit on the fierce side, but David does return to the capital city and proceeds to reign again as the king of Israel. With that somewhat lengthy chapter, 43 verses, what might be some lessons briefly found in it that could be of help to you and me? May I submit for us to consider two of them. First of all, in regard to Shimei, would it not be a wise and somewhat useful statement to know? It's far better to use sweet words in our language for the time may come that we end up having to eat those words. You know what happened with Shimei? He seemed so confident and assured of himself when David was on the run from Jerusalem, cursing him, throwing rocks and dust at him, never pondering the thought that that same one might return to be king and you would need to bow before him. And yet that's exactly what happened. Shimei had to eat those words and beg the forgiveness of David. Maybe you and I should appreciate that when we use sweet words, they're far easier to swallow a bit later, aren't they? How often in the Bible are we reminded of the importance of using words that are sweet and gracious? In fact, notice just a few passages that I wished to call to our attention. In Psalm 19, verse 14, the closing verse to that chapter, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. 
or that famous echo in Ephesians 4, verse 29. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. In Proverbs 25, 11, A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold and pictures of silver. Isn't that a vivid passage? Isn't that a breathtakingly dramatic text that's set before us? And perhaps in addition to all of them, is it not possible to remember a text that we noted even in the lesson this morning from the closing chapter of Colossians? As we remember that our speech is to be always with grace, seasoned with salt. The language you and I use thus ought not be as Shimei's first language, but far more in such a passion and understanding that it is to be sweet and that it is to minister grace to those that hear. But maybe a second lesson as well. Can we not also from the same chapter appreciate a bit about David? David was, as the chapter opened, rendering a great deal of honor to a man, namely his son, who was undeserving of much honor. Absalom was a rebel. He was a scoundrel. He was a person who had so little interest in the life of his own father, he was willing to take his life. He deceived the hearts of the children of Israel in chapter 15. He lifted himself up and made promises he could never keep. Yet David, no doubt out of fatherly love for him, desired to lament properly over him. But perhaps it was excessive. I have entitled that lesson as Render Honor to Whom Honor is Due. We each realize that there are those who strive through the utmost of their life to live nobly and properly and honestly, and they are to be honored, not only by God, but by us as well. There are others who do not live in such an honorable fashion. We are told in Romans 13 to render honor to whom honor is due. May you and I learn the same kind of lesson that Joab had to teach David to extend, display, and render honor properly and appropriately to those who are worthy of receiving that honor. It might be the Lord had a very graphic way of putting that also in Matthew chapter 7. For on that occasion did he not say, Do not cast your pearls before swine, or else they will turn and rend you. The Lord's point, that which is valuable by you will not be treated as valuable by others. Some don't have the appreciation for what truly is eternally of great value, and they will, due to their lack of appreciation of it, have no consideration for it, as well as perhaps for even you and me as the messenger. May we rend proper honor those to whom that honor is worthy and to those for whom it is due. Some passages perhaps also to be remembered in that way. The closing four verses of Mark chapter 3. On that occasion our Lord was preaching, and His mother and His brothers in the flesh came and desired to speak with Him. And information was even shared to Jesus of that very point. They told Him, Behold, thy mother and thy brethren are here. Jesus, perhaps in a very interesting fashion, and no doubt a bit of confusion to those who heard, looked at the audience and said, Behold, my mother and my brethren. Those who cherished the things of God were the ones who the Lord had desired to be with and those whom He desired to honor with His presence. Might we look then into chapter 20, a much shorter chapter in 2 Samuel. In its brevity, though, some interesting lessons are to be found therein. In 2 Samuel 20, 
With David now having returned to the confines of Jerusalem, a quick question might be, how safe were these confines? As the chapter opens, we find mention of a gentleman new to us in this book. His name is Sheba, S-H-E-B-A. A rather interesting name for an individual, a man certainly. But we find quickly about this gentleman that he was a Benjamite who himself was a rebel also. Not too much unlike Absalom himself. As the discussion proceeds, we notice that he initiated a revolt against David. The revolt is found in these words in verse number 1. We have no part in David, neither have we any inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel. Thus, as Sheba garnered the attention of Israel, he said, David will not represent us. Notice in part, that came because of the closing part of the previous chapter. Only Judah was invited to bring David back home. Thus, here was Sheba arising and saying, Because we have not been chosen, only Judah was. We have no inheritance in Israel. David is not our king. He doesn't represent us anymore. In the aftermath of that thought, David was perhaps thinking this revolt could get extreme. Others would hear of it and proceed to follow Sheba. And hence, beginning in verse number 3, we notice that David gave orders. For in fact, the words, in, words found like this in verse number 4, The king said to Amasa, Assemble me the men of Judah within three days, and be thou here present. He was going to deal with this gentleman named Sheba pretty much up front. He wasn't going to let this revolt boil and fester and perhaps lead to something great. However, Amasa did not assemble the people in the time that David had given him to do so. And thus, in verses 5 and following, David gave orders to his troops, You go and chase Sheba, and you catch him. You take care of this revolt. And so it was as the chapter unfolded. We notice that David's men did overtake Sheba, and Joab killed Sheba. Putting an end to that revolt, it was dealt with rather promptly and rather quickly. And having dealt with it in that fashion, might we notice that ultimately it ended in a rather unusual fashion as they chased him. As Joab chased him ultimately, he came to this city known as Bethmaacah and Abel of it. As that place came, there was a woman in that city who was a rather wise woman, the text says. As she recognized her city was under assault and under pursuit, she wished to preserve it. And in that preservation, she shouted over the wall of the city what they were searching for. And Joab shouted, it was none other than Sheba the rebel. She as well apparently as the men of the city cut off Sheba's head, cast it over the wall. And thus after Joab had his head, if you will, he was able to leave the place of that revolt. The city was left in peace. And the lady had accomplished what she wished to have accomplished. As I close that particular screen on the wall, you might notice that the members of David's cabinet are listed again. It might be interesting to compare this listing with the one we encountered earlier in chapter 8. The two listings have some additional members on this occasion. But isn't it interesting? Many of the others remain the same. They had remained loyal to David, though he, in that intervening time, had of course left Jerusalem for a while. That chapter maybe leads us to see these brief lessons as well. 
I would ask you to notice. Sheba did begin to feel a degree of greatness in terms of those that were following him. Notice in verse, verse number 2, Every man of Israel went up from after David. It did seem he was beginning to have a following. That leads us to make note of this lesson. The masses will often pursue the one that's wrong. Because he is an eloquent speaker or he is a gifted orator, he's a person who can speak persuasively and powerfully and directly, that often garners the attention of many. And they're willing to forego their previous allegiance and to follow the person who is now speaking to them. That is a very powerful and noted lesson for us. Sheba was not the king. David was. They ought to have been loyal to him. He had the promise of God resting upon him. Why did they want to follow Sheba? They were misled. Lesson for us. That can happen religiously too. Masses around the world follow those who are not true preachers. Those who are not truly spokesmen for the word of God. They have mixed in some truth with their own thoughts and ideas and that perverts the truth so that it's not the truth anymore. Galatians 1 verses 8 and 9 still tells us there's one gospel and no man under heaven or even angels are able to preach anything against it that has any lasting influence. In Exodus 23 verse 2, the children of Israel were warned many centuries earlier than this time, Thou shalt not follow a multitude to do evil. May you and I remember that same lesson today. Our young people, as they are facing peer pressure day by day, they need to remember that. Don't follow a multitude to do evil. Even if you stand alone, if you're standing in the right, with God with you, you're in the majority. You're in the way that ultimately will be vindicated by the great God of heaven. But not only are young people, all of us need that lesson. It's easy for any of us to be brainwashed. That smooth-talking, eloquent spokesman of some kind can sell us a false religion that will lead us to, to, to eternal ruin. We need the Word of God and a heavy dose of it to appreciate that the words of 1 John 4 verse 1 ever so powerfully apply. Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they be of God. Perhaps the final thought that we could list for Matthew 7 verses 13 and 14 remind us that there's two roads. One of them is broad, that is to say exceedingly wide and it's easy to travel it. But there's also a straight gate and a narrow way that leads to life and few there be that find it. You see, if we're in the majority following the masses, we're guaranteed to be traveling the wide road that leads to hell. That's a frightful contemplation, isn't it? May we ever thus in wisdom and power and fortitude not be like Israel that was so quick to follow Sheba. May we be a loyal bunch ever desirous of following the singular master that leads to life. That lesson perhaps is augmented by another one. Wasn't it interesting how quickly David dealt with the rebel this time? He had allowed Absalom too much leeway to gain a following and it cost David. David this time was far swifter in dealing with the rebel. Sheba's revolt was quashed rather quickly. Is that not a lesson for us too today perhaps in realizing problems are better dealt with sooner than later? 
when you allow them to fester and to boil, and you allow the issue perhaps to arise to greater heights and ascendancy, sometimes it's far more difficult to deal with it then. But when up front, it is still small, relatively speaking, at least many times, it's far easier to handle. That's certainly true in regard to factious individuals in the church, isn't it? An eldership must deal with problem makers immediately. If given too much time, they can cause great problems for many of the families present, ultimately splintering a congregation and causing it to divide. Isn't that the reason that Paul told Titus, after the first and second admonition, a factious man's to be rejected. You deal with him quickly. You train, you teach, but if he's unwilling to listen, you reject him. You withdraw fellowship from him immediately. You see, elderships and their wisdom will follow such and act so kindly but yet firmly with those that are the troublemakers and the rebels. It's to be noted each of us can take an approach not unlike that idea. In 2 Thessalonians 3, verses 6 and following, the withdrawing of fellowship is absolutely commanded. In instance, it's not unlike that one. And so with the head of Sheba garnered by Joab and taken back to David, that revolt was over. It was to cause no more issues and no more problems. On to chapter 21, we're ready to go. This chapter is a little lengthier than chapter number 20, but a bit shorter than chapter 19. In chapter number 21, we encounter another rather interesting arena of ideas. As the chapter opens, we notice that a terrible famine had overcome the children of Israel. The land was suffering and languishing beneath this terrible famine. It lasted for three long years. David made a wonderful decision. In his desire to learn what was the cause of this famine, he prayed to God. Remember, he's made mistakes more than once in this book. In regard to Bathsheba, God was displeased and David never approached God with respect to any of those events of chapter 11. However, in this chapter, David inquires of God for the cause of this famine. God responds, it's because of the Gibeonites, David. It's because of that group that you and your people, especially Saul, have affronted in ways that were not to be done. That takes us back extensively in history. The Gibeonites, we remember from Joshua chapter 9, were a group of people who fooled Israel. They put on old clothes and brought moldy bread and in fact took wine bottles that had wine that was somewhat aged and ultimately empty in the final aftermath. And they came before the children of Israel to the kings and said, We have come from a far distance, but we desire to make an agreement with you, a pact, a covenant if you will, that you won't destroy us. Joshua signed the compact, believing the tale they told. However, it wasn't long before Joshua and the people of Israel came to understand they hadn't come from a far distance at all. They were their neighbors. It was their ploy to, to secure for themselves safety that they wouldn't be destroyed as Israel conquered the land of Canaan. However, because their word was given, they had to remain true to that word. They could not destroy the Gibeonites. They did, however, make them servants. They became hewers of wood and drawers of water, as we learn in Joshua 9. Later, though, Saul did something he should not have done. He broke that promise. King Saul began to destroy and kill certain of the Gibeonites because they were problems to him. He thus broke the agreement that his 
forefathers had made with that very group of Gibeonites. That's the reason God said the famine has come on the land. You broke your word. Notice in the aftermath of that, David goes before the Gibeonites and asks them, what can we do to rectify, to make this situation right? And they respond, we don't want you taking anybody's life. Do not kill any in Israel, David. Rather, what we wish is for you to give us descendants of Saul and let us deal with them as we see fit. And so in chapter 21, seven descendants of Saul are turned over to the Gibeonites and they proceed to hang them. Just as we might imagine an old western that we might see on TV not many years back. Hanged them all at once at the same time. These sons of Saul, or descendants of Saul I should list or say, are listed for us beginning in chapter 21, verses 8 and following. As that hanging takes place, the scene then returns to goodness for Israel because that famine is lifted. Things are again made right in the sight of heaven. As the chapter proceeds in verses 12 and following, we learn that war again erupts with Israel. Previously in this book, we had seen David joy in the sense of victory over the Philistines. Earlier in chapters 8 and 9 and 10, Israel had enjoyed great victory over them, but they were not completely eliminated. They were only forced back to their land and understanding that Saul, or rather David, had a bit of the ascendancy over them at that point. But after a few years, they tried again. And then so as chapter 21 closes, they proceeded to again fight against David and the people of Israel. And in that fighting, we have the names of several of the giants of the Philistines. These, it seems, were somewhat kin, if not directly, at least indirectly, to Goliath, and some of their names are certainly interesting, such as Ishbabanob in verse 16. Notice that the very massive spear that he carried is described in words like this. And Ishbabanob, which was of the sons of the giant, the weight of whose spear weighed 300 shekels of brass in weight, he being girded with a new sword, thought to have slain David. This Ishbabanob thought that he perhaps had been able to actually slay David, but it wasn't so. For as we read in the verses that follow, there were others of these giants, rather large men it would seem. If we only remember how large Goliath was, it may be a clue to how large some of these men may have been. The actual size and girth and in stature here is not given. But we might we remember from 1 Samuel 17 that Goliath himself stood over nine feet tall. A true giant of an individual. Perhaps some of these were also very large men of stature like that. Even Israel, however, was able to slay them. David's forces were still victorious even over these gigantically sized Philistines. At that point, as we come to the next chapter, which we shall take up next Lord's Day evening, we shall find a song of victory as well as a song of thankfulness to God for his blessings for being with David and all of Israel throughout the course of these wars. Maybe some more lessons. Notice with me what else can well be stated. First, concerning the Gibeonites. Isn't it interesting to think for a moment about this? Here was a three-year famine that came upon Israel. 
And the reason was because of what Saul had done to the Gibeonites many, many years earlier. We even learned earlier in our study tonight, Saul committed suicide on Mount Gilboa in 1 Samuel 31. Notice, God didn't forget. When Saul and the others sinned, God didn't just forget it. It is a shame and an absolute tragedy that there are some in our world today who think that God's just going to forget about sin. That they don't need to obey any kind of gospel that come the day of judgment, God's going to welcome them into the pearly gates of heaven just because they wished at now and then for things to be good. They're going to be very, very shocked for that's not going to happen. And I consider myself, because I am no prophet at all, I know that because that's what the Bible says. God's not going to just forget about sin. The only way He forgets about it is if it's forgiven. If it's not forgiven, God doesn't forget it. Thus, as we read in texts like this one, doesn't that paint a picture that here what happened to the Gibeonites, God had not forgotten. He even, in fact, brought it up to David. David wasn't even aware of it. Could it be at the day of judgment that there will be many whom you and I may know as friends and companions and cohorts who are going to stand there and think that sins had been dealt with somehow, only to see when God opens the book, He's going to list every one of them and say, these were never forgiven. Christ's blood never cleansed any of them, for you weren't baptized. Or you never came back to your first love. And because of that, he's going to say, I don't know you. And off into eternal ruin you will go. Isn't that a frightening spectacle? For us to ever be aware of the fact there's only one way in all the Bible when God forgets about sin, and it's when that sin's forgiven. In fact, the Old Testament had prophesied, their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. But that was conditioned. Under what context would they not be remembered? That's found in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34. It's when the gospel, the new covenant, was followed and obeyed. May we never forget, sin is that critical. God doesn't just offhand forget it. He has a perfect memory. Only when He chooses to forget will He forget. Notice the second lesson as well. Israel continued to have her enemies. Maybe after we concluded chapter 10, we were of the position that all the enemies were vanquished and there would be no more. But that wasn't true. And so it is in my life and yours that that is a very dramatic warning. There are times when things seem well. All is going right. We feel strong in faith. And we might think, Satan cannot get me. Friend, when we start thinking that, it won't be long before he'll have us right where he wants us. You see, just as surely as the Philistines rose again to be a thorn in David's side, so too will Satan present things to us and cause us to again battle in a strong way the warfare of common life in Jesus. That's simply the way it is. Perhaps that leads us to notice some passages. In Galatians 1 verse 4, Jesus himself paved the way to deliver us from this present evil world. The world is evil. That's the way it is. Those are sorely mistaken who think there will ever be a utopian existence here. It simply will never be that way. Might we ever understand, as well as that text and others, in Acts chapter 13, on through chapter 20, 
The very life of Paul is an open testimony to the same. In city after city that he visited, often he was chased out of town by the very ones who were Jews. They were enemies to his message and unwilling to deal with it and accept it, and so they chased the messenger out of town. When he reached chapter 14 in our study, we noted in our study of Acts, they stoned him and thought they'd killed him, but they hadn't. Might we remember in our life too, there will be constant enemies, and the one leading the pack is the devil himself. Maybe yet a third lesson. The punishment that was rendered, that we can see in this chapter, to those that were the lawbreakers and the rebels. We can be thankful and often wish perhaps our government would do more to rightfully punish the lawbreakers and to do so in such a way that they would not be so quickly released, only it seems to commit the same things again. Punishment when it's meted out firmly and strongly often is a dramatic deterrent to crime, isn't it? Notice the Gibeonites hung all seven of those who were committed to their trust. Is it any wonder in Romans 13 as well as 1 Peter 2? Lessons are reminded to us that the government does not bear the sword in vain. They are able to take life when it's a justly determined matter, and that should be a rather strong capital deterrent to the committing of various crimes. To think about things in those ways maybe leads us to a concluding thought to our lesson tonight. In these three chapters, we have seen David return to the throne. And in that returning, we see a bit of strength present yet in him, though he is very aged in years by this point. One of the latter things that we also seem to see, the immediate dealing with that revolt of Sheba, as well as the famine of chapter number 21. David returned and inquired of God, May you and I also inquire of him often, frequently, appreciating that the information that he shares will be beneficial to lead us safely through the concourse of life. Tonight, thus the question that seems to have been asked many times indirectly in our study tonight, have you tied on to the Savior? We noted just a moment ago, the only way sins are ever forgiven is when Christ's blood is employed to cleanse them. Have you thus employed it? Have you allowed God to operate through His Son to cleanse your sins? If not, the list on that book in heaven must be pretty long. Think about having God bring up and list every one of them on the day of judgment and say, why didn't you have these forgiven? I allowed my Son to shed His blood for you. It would have cleansed them. Why did you never obey the gospel? I can well imagine that perhaps with a trembling and very begging voice you'll cry for one more chance and there will be no more chances forthcoming. You see, the chances we have are those in this life. If you've never obeyed the gospel initially and known the joy of having your sins washed away, let tonight be the night. Jesus demands that you believe Him to be the Son of God. Repent of the sins in your life, though at that time of repentance they are not yet forgiven. You must confess His name as the only begotten Son of God and then be baptized. And at that point, according to Romans chapter 6 as well as Colossians chapter 2, those sins are forgiven. If at that point you've come to be a Christian but you haven't lived faithfully, you've allowed Satan to erupt things in your life and bring to the forefront matters that not only are not good, they are more in defense of him than they are of Jesus. 
You need to come back to that first love and let others know of your change of heart and mind and let them pray on your behalf. The strength of a great number will be a great strength to you. If we could assist you in either of these ways tonight, would you let it be known for each of us while together we stand and while we sing?